Opening a restaurant seems simple, right? You never anticipated that you would expect. 60 to 70% of running a business in California is about managing the administrative gauntlet, the administrative framework in California. I spend time every single day auditing payroll reports, auditing punching reports to make sure that employees aren't clocking in one minute early, aren't missing their break by one minute or two minutes because those little violations can cause hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lawsuits. I was at a trade event the other day. Every single restaurant owner I talked to is in a PAGA lawsuit. Every single one, every retail business owner I talked to is in a PAGA lawsuit. None of them are less than six figures. California is the hardest state to open a restaurant in, according to a new study done by Restaurant Furniture. My guest today is Chef Andrew Gruel who has started and operated multiple restaurants in California. He's going to discuss what are the reasons that makes running a restaurant difficult in California. We're no longer allowed to use plastic gift cards in California. That was recently signed into law. If you offer a straw to a customer, you as the server in the restaurant will get penalized, right? It's a civil violation. So you're saying we are creating a lot of regulations, but we are not having the values inside the people. Yeah, we're taking we're values away. To... We're unmooring people from a value system. Do we want every restaurant to be run like the DMV? I'm Siamak Karami. Welcome to California Insider. Andrew, it's great to have you on. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We are hearing there was a report out that California is the toughest place to have a restaurant for opening up a new restaurant. And there's, there's a lot of laws passing. And you're someone that has had many restaurants here and kind of you've felt the difficulties of working in California. Can you tell us uh, about yourself and what you've been working on? Certainly. If you can operate a restaurant successfully in California, then you can op open a restaurant anywhere, is what I say. I've owned multiple concepts here in California. Originally, Slapfish, which was a fast casual seafood restaurant. I started as a food truck in 2011. I grew it to over 30 locations uh, worldwide. We, at one point, we had about eight or nine in California. I have a pizza spot, Big Parm in Tustin, another seafood restaurant called Calico Fish House in Huntington. I ultimately did sell Slapfish over the past couple years, so I'm no longer involved in that. But the point is, is that I've owned restaurants from Northern California all the way down to Southern California, and I built it from scratch. I was a you know, self-made entrepreneur, started, as I mentioned, with a food truck originally, bootstrapped it off of credit card debt and then grew it into a brick and mortar empire. I've been able to navigate the gauntlet of operating in California, the right rules, the regulations, and things have changed significantly over the past decade. I moved here in 2009 uh, and actually wasn't even opening restaurants. I was working in a nonprofit with the Aquarium of the Pacific, uh, helping educate chefs on sustainable seafood. But what was interesting about that and why I bring it up is, number one, it was my only foray out, of, foray out of the restaurant industry in my life. It was a passion project of mine, marine conservation, ocean conservation. But furthermore, getting chefs to understand that they can actually serve the right types of seafood and change the consumer mindset, <clears throat> which is how I got involved with the aquarium. But what I realized in working within the world of seafood, specifically ocean management in California, was how tight of a grip the government, the state government, has on progress and controlling progress in California uh, from the perspective of the Department of Fish and Game, all the Coastal Commission regulations. And then when I 
got out of the nonprofit and into the independent world of running my own business, I recognized that that framework of regulation applies across all industries. It's the same cut, copy, and paste formula, uh, and I've been living within that world now since 2009. So can you tell us uh, what is it like to, to operate restaurants today in California? It because some are shutting down, we are hearing. Yeah, well, opening a restaurant seems simple, right? You create a great product, you provide really good customer service, you price it properly, and you promote the product. You get people in, you hire good people, you build values, you've got a good team. It seems simple. It's no longer like that, running a restaurant, or any business for that matter. It's now about paperwork. It's about making sure that you don't step on any minute landmines, uh, crossing any specific regulations in California that then ultimately are going to tie you up in lawsuits that you never anticipated that you would expect. 60 to 70 percent of running a business in California is about managing the administrative gauntlet, the administrative framework in California. I spend time every single day auditing payroll reports, auditing punching reports to make sure that employees aren't clocking in one minute early, aren't missing their break by one minute or two minutes because those little violations can cause hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lawsuits that are encouraged by the state of California. And that's just one area, right? The same applies to using gift cards. We're no longer allowed to use plastic gift cards in California. That was recently signed into law. Plastic straws, making sure that your team members don't offer plastic straws, putting plastic to-go materials inside of a takeout container, especially in a post-COVID world where 90% of what you do is takeout. Um, they just recently passed a regulation in California now that's going to mandate restaurants provide roofie kits so that people don't drop some pill into your drink at a bar if you own a bar. And they're also changing what the training courses are for all of the servers in a restaurant, food handlers cards, alcohol training cards. Those things change so constantly and so consistently. And then that's just on a state level, right? So also on a local level, you run into your own different um, regulations and certain permits that you need to get that are constantly changing. So that all sounds very boring, right? I didn't make, mention one thing about actually creating really good food and understanding the products that I sell to my customers because that almost seems secondary in California. And you mentioned punching in for people if they punch in early, you mm -hmm. look for that because isn't that a good thing for people to come to work early? Why do you have to watch that? Well, if they punch in early, um, it's you know, it, and it doesn't fall within the scheduled time frame, that can be a violation. Um, posting schedules early, right? So, so we used to want to post our schedules really early and so that everybody could plan their lives. Let's say the weather comes in, it's really bad, and you call employees off, you still have to pay them if you do give them advance notice because you've already posted the schedule. So that forces businesses now to wait until the last minute to post the schedule because they're waiting to see what the weather is going to be like so that they can actually project sales and project labor against sales. Wow. So now, uh, in terms of these uh, worries that you guys have, you mentioned like a lot of your work has become paperwork. Mm -hmm. And um, can you explain to us like what does it mean? H how does it affect you guys? What I should be doing is talking to guests, creating men new menu items, mastering the, you know, the culinary arts, if you will, hands-on training with my team. But I spend a lot of time in the office now going over payroll reports, going over punching sheets, reading the specifics within a new law. Um, you know, they just passed the junk fee bill here in California, which I understand the premise of it, but 
you're no longer allowed to charge certain tips and gratuities and service charges or you'll get penalized by the state of California if it isn't disclosed in a certain way. And while I, we don't deal within that world of just adding fees and service fees, um, it affects us because the language in these bills are so specific that you could inadvertently make a mistake and not disclose something that needs to be disclosed and then get fined by the state of California. So these things are constantly piling up and we really got to get ahead of it. We need to understand it. Uh, the FAST Act, which of course is kind of the gorilla in the room in California, which is AB 728, which is the mandatory $20 minimum wage bill. That's what gets the headlines, but there's so much more in that bill um, beyond just the minimum wage that we also need to understand, uh, you know, from a, from a, a legal perspective. Does that affect you guys? Because that was just the franchisees, like that was, right? Yeah, it, yeah, the FAST Act affected franchisees who have locations of 20 more units, right? So, um, you know, it doesn't specifically affect us, but what it does is that sets a standard in terms of how much people are getting paid in California. So if $20 is the minimum wage for any of these multi-unit chains, well, then everybody needs to meet that, right? Because now you're competing for the same labor pool. It doesn't affect me my business because we pay our well above $20 an hour. We, uh, I opened my first restaurant because I felt actually, this is why there's an interesting kind of paradox to what I'm talking about, I felt that restaurant workers in general were being mistreated in the industry as a whole. Um, having worked in so many different restaurants, I realized that cooks and dishwashers and busboys and servers and those kind of part-time hourly workers were treated like slave labor. If you wanted to work your way up within the restaurant industry, you had to work 80 hours unpaid, you know, for some elite chef, and you had to take a ton of verbal and physical abuse. And in my era, you saw a lot of those young cooks end up in rehab centers, alcohol abuse, because it was such a hard life to live. Uh, I said, I want to open my own restaurant because I want to create a family. I want to create a family of team members who want to do their job really well, who are vested in the business, who can share in the profits, while it might not necessarily be a um, you know, employee-owned business on paper, we have a lot of incentivized profit-sharing programs within the business. We do well, everybody does well, but more importantly, we pay people really well. We actually use the living wage calculator. Before, MIT has a living wage calculator that basically gives you a, a general framework for what you should be paying people so that they can have one job and afford to live in California. Uh, they do it geographically across the whole United States. We were using that before it became the trendy talking point. Uh, so we don't necessarily need the laws to tell us what to do. That's what's really interesting. We do it because we also understand that by paying people well and having really good team members, you decrease turnover so you don't have those recruiting costs. When you train new employees, there's a significant cost that goes along with that because there's a ramp up stage for their developing their productivity. And your team members are happier. And when they're happier, that exudes to the guest and through the food. And that's when people come back to restaurants. That's loyalty. So I don't need Gavin Newsom to tell me how to run a business. I don't need the Senate in California to tell me what to do. I do it naturally because it's the right thing to do. And the free market brings people in as a result of that. What's happening now is by over-regulating these things, you're 
forcing a lot of these larger multi-unit corporations into doing these things that then gives them kind of a facade or an air of doing the right thing when you should let the free market understand who to work for, what business to go to. Um, there's always unintended consequences when the government gets involved. Before we continue, we would like to thank Shen Yun for sponsoring this channel. I lived in China for two years and experienced two different Chinas. One is the China we know now, unfortunately with communism. And the other is ancient Chinese culture with 5,000 years of history, strong values, ethics and morality that has been lost. Shen Yun Performing Arts is reviving this 5,000 years of Chinese traditional culture. It takes you back in time to magical world of ancient China with a unique blend of brilliant dancing, beautiful costumes, and legends coming to life. Go to ShenYun.com to find out the schedule and theater information. It's a lifetime experience you don't want to miss. Just so inspiring. It makes me want to go dance. Breathtaking. I was very impressed. I'm taking my program and I'm going to mention it on the news because I think it's a great performance and people should see it. What I loved about the show was the authenticity of it. It was taking me on a journey. Exceptional, the technique involved that, the thousands of hours of training. People just float. Everything was exact and then they worked to the exact moment and it was beautiful. You go away feeling with a smile in your heart from it. Have to come. Life-changing. Make sure you see it. Make sure you see it. Don't wait. Don't Get your tickets wait. now. You mentioned, uh, you know, the roofie testers. What is wrong with that? That sounds like a good thing, right? Yeah, it is a good thing, right? And I uh, find it disgusting that anybody would ever drop a roofie into somebody's drink. But here's the thing, right? I think about personal liberty and the ability to... Uh, manage oneself. If I go into a bar, I need to keep my eyes open for a dangerous situation. I need to understand the threats within my environment and I have to build up that street smarts. If I go into a bar now and I'm like, well, you know, the restaurant's got to control this for me because they've got these roofie kits and they're doing X, Y, and Z. Well, now I've lost that ability to look out for myself. And every single time that you get the government involved, in taking away a natural instinct, you end up with a public, you know, a, ma a mass of people who don't understand how to think and operate for themselves, number one. Number two, it, we're, we're not in the business of policing our customers. And ultimately, when you shift the liability to the small business owner, it's just another risk that we take on. It's effectively going to encourage people away from operating and owning their own business. I want people to own their own businesses. I want people to open up their own businesses. I love the idea of entrepreneurship because I think that that's the way that you can build economies. There's so much more love, there's so much more, so many more values in a family-run business, and especially when it grows. And I think that that's part of the engine that really builds our economy. When you move everything into state-run jobs and they're kind of, just go to the DMV. Those people look happy who are working at the DMV. Do we want every restaurant to be run like the DMV? We lose innovation. We lose that je ne sais quoi. We lose the Main Street, that character and that charm that Main Streets are known for with their independent one-off restaurants, family-run restaurants. So, you know, when we lose all of that, we're losing that beautiful face of America um, that we all know and love. 
You also mentioned uh, that you have to watch the hours of mm -hmm. the people. Uh, why is that? So there was a bill that was signed into law in 2004 in California. It's called PAGA. It's the Public Attorney General Act. And what that allows people to do, and well, let me back up. The reason why that was important in 2004 is, as I had mentioned and I agreed with, there's many situations in which workers are mistreated. And I think a lot of these workers felt like they didn't know who to turn to. You have the California Labor Commissioner, you have the um, Department of Labor that's supposed to be policing these businesses who mistreat their employees. But in many cases, the government is either unproductive or overwhelmed with work, however you want to call it. So what they, what they said was, well, now we're going to allow employees okay, to file lawsuits on behalf of the attorney general. So if I go work somewhere, and I'm not being paid properly, or my hours aren't being clocked properly, I can now go to an attorney and I can file a lawsuit on behalf of the attorney general. That makes it very serious. And then that gives you this, these, these broad rights to effectively go into all the payroll records and audit, like a labor commissioner would do, all of your payroll reports to see if there's any violations within the California framework of labor law. And that's, what I talk, that's where I said we, we, I spend so much time going in to make sure because let's say now I'm the employee who's, who's been improperly treated and I file this lawsuit. Now the trial attorney comes in and they subpoena all the records and they see that, wow, this person worked five hours without taking a break, this person improperly clocked in, <coughs> you missed this punch, et cetera. Well, even if there's one violation, it's $100 for every single employee, it becomes a class action, regardless of whether the employees want to be a part of that lawsuit. And it immediately becomes like a $100,000 violation. Even if it's one violation. One violation one now thing. is a multiplier, right? So a single violation, the, the penalty, right, is that's how they formulate the penalty. It's okay if you violated it once, it's $100 per employee, per payroll period, up to, the, up to X amount of time. Two violations, it's like 1000 so it just keeps compiling. Now these violations could be very, very minuscule violations. And <clears throat> what happens then is that there are these massive lawsuits. Now, fast forward to today, PAGA, the Public Attorney General Act, has been hijacked by trial attorneys. In the last six years, trial attorneys alone made $8 billion in settlements through PAGA. Well, they realized, oh my gosh, nobody's checking this. We can actually file all these lawsuits essentially shake down businesses, put them out of business if that's what it takes, and the state of California gets 75% of the settlements. So the state of California is deputizing these attorneys to go and shake down businesses because that's, they're just getting 75 cents on every single dollar. The employee doesn't get any, they get like 5% of the money. So that's the point. The employee is, the intention was good in 2004, we're going to help these employees and we're going to scare the businesses. Now it's become a runaway shakedown program between the labor commissioner and the trial attorneys and it's gone to the Supreme Court on multiple occasions and it's still not getting shot down. California is the only state that has PAGA in place. Every other state has shot it down or hasn't even pushed it through the legislature. Um, and it's just another example of how California deputizes these various agencies in order to do their work for them. They take all the money. It hurts the small businesses. It forces us to, I'll tell you this, every, I was at a trade event the other day. Every single restaurant owner I talked to is in a PAGA lawsuit. Every single one. 
Every retail business owner I talk to is in a PAGA lawsuit. None of them are less than six figures, many of whom have had to take out high interest loans in order to cover the PAGA lawsuits. Um, most of the employees that are part of the class action don't even want to be part of these lawsuits, but they automatically become a class action by way of one single employee. So there's situations where people go in on, and they, they basically are like, you know, encouraged by these trial attorneys to create these PAGA situations so the trial attorneys make a lot of money. Have you had any happen to you? Oh yeah, oh yeah, we've had PAGA lawsuits, yep. And what does it feel like? How does it, how does you, it? There's no, like, for example, we had one where an employee got drunk on his first day at work. He um, quit, uh, well, he got fired. He'd only worked for like six hours. And then he was mad that we didn't hire him back because he was begging for his job. I made a mistake, I was drinking. We're like, look, we don't, we just can't take that risk. I mean, we're a family-run business. I have my kids in there every single day. We have zero tolerance for drinking and drugs, especially on the job. Well, he was mad. So obviously he goes to one of these trial attorneys and then they file a lawsuit, missed punches, missed vacation pay, all of these things that didn't apply to him, right? He'd only worked for five or six hours. doesn't matter. They can still file it. Then they receive the information in a subpoena state, basically, like give us your payroll records. Then they find a violation and then bam, on starts the lawsuit. On other people, find. yeah. Like we had a situation where people didn't take their break after five hours. I begged them to take their breaks at five hours, but in many cases, they're only working five and a half, six hours. So like, I don't want to take a 30 minute break. Or their friends come in and they want to take a break with their friend. So they wait 10 minutes, eight minutes, seven minutes. They work five hours and seven minutes. And even if they fill out a form where they say, I, I want to work over the five hours, it doesn't matter in the state of California. So bam, there's a violation, applies to every employee, and the number just starts aggregating over time. And then all of the employees get involved in this lawsuit? or They, they, have, they don't get involved. They don't even know they're involved. They do it by head, right? So if you've got 40 employees and you had one violation, they're going to say, okay, $100, $100 per employee every payroll period for nine payroll periods, and you can see how quickly it becomes $30,000, right? Yeah. Because they're penalizing you on, the, on behalf of the labor commissioner in the state of California. 75% of the money, the penalty, goes to the state of California, regardless of the sub substance of the original claim. That's the point. Um, and none of the other employees have to be complicit in the class action. It's just merely that their number's on a spreadsheet that get worked into the algorithm. And if you think about it, the law to me is unconstitutional because the Attorney General of the state of California is duly elected as a constitutional officer. And now you have all these thousands of deputized Attorney Generals just out there blatantly filing lawsuits you know, every single day. And it's really not the majority of these lawsuits, if you look at them, have not been on behalf of employees for wrongdoing. They're used as a modern day mechanism for extortion, just another tax. Since 2004, there's been billions of dollars paid by employers and businesses have left the state. And it's because of PAGA. It's about this little known thing in the law and it's called inaccurate wage statements. A perfect example is there is an employer that got sued by a PAGA lawsuit that operates in three different states. They actually operate one here in Kern County, Wyoming and Texas. And on their paycheck stubs, they have the Wells Fargo logo, like the stagecoach from the bank. 
And they didn't want to put a Bakersfield address so the employees in Wyoming and Texas would not have a problem. You know, they'd have a problem cashing their check. So they used the Wells Fargo logo, just the stagecoach with the horses running, and it just says Wells Fargo. So if an employee wanted to go cash their check, they would just find a Wells Fargo and go cash their check. But because it didn't have a correct physical address, and you have to keep in mind that the employer did this to help the employees. Like if you had a Bakersfield address and you cashed a check in Wyoming, they may say, mm, it's an out-of-state check. So the employer did this to benefit the employees. That's an infraction. It cost that employer almost a million dollars, a million dollars. I had another employer, this particular employer, all the employees would meet at the yard and then they'd go to several different destinations that weren't like right there on site. And one of the things that the employees had made in the suggestion box is to get an ice machine so that they didn't have to stop and buy ice every day. So the employer installed an ice machine. There was a, litigated, a litigation and the attorney said every time that, when they came in the yard and went and got ice, that should start the clock. When the employer for years that they've been business, the clock started when they left the yard. Um, so some employees might come in and load their truck or some employees might come in and you know, get ice. Some employees, they come in and stand around. Hey, you know, what are you doing today? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to 99 and such and such, or I'm going here. Um, the lawyer said that's all work time because they were on the premises. That cost them almost a million dollars of what they considered unpaid wages. So after the big settlement of that lawsuit, the employer got rid of the ice machine and he keeps the gate closed until six o'clock. Then he opens it and then they can come in and start doing their process which creates morale issues with the employees. They hated it. They don't like that kind of stuff. We track these lawsuits. So this is just an example. Every day, I don't know if you can see this, but every day, these are the lawsuits. This is one day, one day filed in the state of California. And every day I get an email and this is only, uh, each one of these things is one lawsuit. So this attorney tracks all these lawsuits that are going on in the state of California. You've got lawsuits for reimbursement of electricity rates when you provide somebody with a company phone and they charge their phone at home. You, you provide somebody, an employee with a company truck and they take pride in that truck and on their way home, they stop at the car wash or they get with their kids and they wash the truck on Saturday morning. It's a violation of the labor code because you have to pay them to maintain, you know, to wash your vehicle. So they quit issuing company vehicles. Now you just drive your own car to the yard and pick stuff up. It's just absurd how they are deteriorating the relationship between the employer and the employee. It's a mess. So we are doing some things to try to fix it. But again, we're in Sacramento and we have to work with people who don't believe that this is a problem. Is this one of your main worries as a, as a restaurant owner here in California? Oh yeah, I'll never open another restaurant in the state of California. Never ever again. Because it's inevitable you're gonna run into one of the PAGA lawsuits. Um, but furthermore, you know, I talk about doing business in California. I say, you know, there's, it, it's, it's CRT, right? Crime, regulation, and taxes. Those are the three reasons why businesses are having trouble or I'm leaving the state of California. Crime. There's so many ramifications of decriminalizing certain, certain crimes. Prop 47, right? You know, turns felonies into misdemeanors. You can steal anything under $900 and it's no longer a felony. That, that tells criminals you're going to get away with it. And there's been, you know, there, there's been this ripple effect amongst all criminals that they know that they're going to get away with everything. We had someone break into our business 
about a month ago. Um, you know, stole uh, yeah, maybe fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars worth of uh, equipment, money. Was it overnight? It was overnight. They broke in. Um, we had it all on camera. We've got fingerprints. The police did a great job. Huntington Beach Police Department investigating everything. But ultimately, what they said, and I'm summarizing this, is like, yeah, even if we catch the guy, they're not going to do anything about it. If he ever does get booked, he'll be right out on the streets and he'll do it again because he knows there's no consequences in California for the actions, right? So that tells criminals, like, you can get away with anything. And that means that's not just hands-on criminals, that's fraudsters too. The uh, people who are going to manipulate, and, you know, credit card fraud or using counterfeit money. I cannot tell you how many counterfeit hundreds we get at the restaurant. Wow. Good ones. Good ones, I tell you. This is the... The, the unintended consequences, the little ripple effects that I talk about. Um, you know, regulations, I think we've touched on some of those, and taxes. And you can't usually find out, right? You, you, once you take it to the bank, you realize that. Yeah, yeah. And we have the dollar, we, we have the thing now where it checks, but look, my employees get busy and they don't always check. I, I can't, what am I gonna do? So if I, let's say I have an employee who doesn't check $900 bills and they're all fake. I can't fire the employee if, because PAGA, uh, you know, you can't fire an employee in the state of California unless you have a slew of documentation and paperwork. And then even if you do, they can just retaliate and just file a PAGA lawsuit against you. So you, you got to hire slow and make sure you hire the right people. So I have all four of my kids working in the restaurant all the time. Granted, they'd probably sue me in a second. <laughs> um, and the police aren't going to do anything about it. And you're right, it just goes to the bank and, you know, the bank will come after you for trying to deposit a counterfeit dollar bill. And, and tell us about the other ones. You said crime regulation and taxes. Is mm -hmm. what, what about taxes? Is that just a corporate tax or is there any other? Um, well, payroll taxes, right? So California's got the highest payroll tax of any state in the nation. What makes up payroll taxes in California is the um, employee training tax, ETT. You've got the unemployment insurance, which is basically, um, you know, uh, when you get fired from a job, you pay into unemployment insurance. Uh, you've got your income tax and Social Security. Well, our payroll taxes are the highest. Now, what's interesting about that is the employee pays it and the employer pays it. So we match. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that is, is that it's, you know, this is both of us in, involved in this game. And the reason they're so high in California, of course, is it's my estimation. This hasn't come out there, but... We, we misappropriated like $60 billion in unemployment insurance during COVID. Um, and they got to they gotta refill those coffers somehow. So unemployment insurance goes way up for businesses. So that's on the payroll tax side. Yeah, there were some reports, 20 to 30 billion, but 60 is yours, right? Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard it all. So yeah, you okay. know, perhaps I'm overestimating, but e even that much is, is a yeah, scary number. There wasn't enough money. So then they, they're charging the businesses yeah. more to pay yeah. for it. Um, and you know, ta the gas tax. Right, California's gas tax and the cost of gas in California. Why is that important? Well, California's the only state where you're gonna have distributors charging and passing that gas tax on to the restaurants, uh, to the businesses, to deliver the goods that you're paying for. So when I talk to my contemporaries outside of California, I say, do you guys get charged on every invoice for gas for your drivers and your trucks? And they're like, no, we, 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 don't, we don't deal with that. So, um, you know, you know, inch by inch, right? It, it gets you. And so you moved here, 2009. You had, uh, did you have a different perception of California? You came here from New York, right? Yeah, I came here from New Jersey, uh, New York area. I understood the politics in California. 
Um, the only thing that I, you know, the only problem was that I, I don't think I understood the depth to which they're going to continue piling up these regulations. So I knew I was going to be up against something. But California is beautiful, you know. And let me counterpoint this by saying I firmly do believe there's hope in California. I think California is an absolutely gorgeous state. I think there's brilliant people here. I think we've got the opportunity for so much innovation geographically in terms of aquaculture and the ocean and utilizing the ocean's resources to develop a blue economy. California is the answer. Um, if we got out of our own way, you know, the Southern California bite, right, which is the, in the ocean where the kind of the, uh, you go out the, along the coast and then the continental shelf just drops. You have this prime opportunity for healthy aquaculture uh, here in California. But we're, we don't have a framework for developing aquaculture systems uh, that can be privately run and managed, publicly overseen, because we want to overregulate it so it just doesn't happen. So we think to ourselves, well, look, you know, we're not, we're doing the right thing. We want to make sure we do this right. Well, what do we do in the meantime? We buy all of our seafood from China that doesn't regulate anything. One of the largest trade deficits behind oil and automobiles is seafood. And yet we have some of the most amazing seafood in the world along the coast of California, which ironically, a, a li the lion's share of it, we catch and ship to China to process and buy back from them. It's backwards. So I came to California because it's so amazing. And I just highlighted a few of those reasons why it's great and why there's still hope. But I've gotten caught in the quagmire of, um, and I don't mean to sound negative on a lot of this stuff. I highlight these things because if people understood, and this is a bipartisan conversation. This isn't left or right. This is center. And I actually believe that in California, there's just a, a lot of independent-minded folk who don't always fully understand the ramifications of a political supermajority where they're just constantly putting more and more and more laws on the books and how that affects small businesses and then ultimately how that affects the culture of living in California and operating your own business, which is key, as I mentioned. So I think people can come together and understand, look, this proposition doesn't work. This bill doesn't work. Let's repeal this one. Let's roll this one back. We can still have high taxes. That's fine. Um, but just not the highest and not being taxed into a system where the taxes aren't used to our benefit. That, that's the key here, you know, and I'm trying to look at this not so narrowly focused. I'm trying to look at it from an open-minded perspective. Um, you know, we don't need to throw out the baby with the bathwater and burn the system down, but I think that if we, we can, you know, really fix things. And a lot of people look at it and they say, well, it's a supermajority, so, you know, they're going to cheat. You're not going to be able to get them to vote people out. Well, that, that's not necessarily true, right? Because a lot of the people in, are in positions that are appointed um, who are making these decisions in California. So you get a couple of the right people voted in, and they can actually start putting in moderate decision makers in these appointed positions. And then we can slowly start to introduce some normalcy to this beautiful state um, that every, everybody loves. That's why there's so many people here. Uh, you actually observed this situation. So you, you started your own food truck, mm -hmm. and then, and then, uh, was there a point where you realized there's something wrong with the laws? Was there an event that actually triggered you thinking about the laws in the state? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll tell you this: when I opened up my first food truck, I went down to the local the local food truck lot, and most of the food trucks that were there were driving around the construction lots, um, all under the table right? Cash business, these guys 
were completely ignored by the state. And it was kind of like an understanding that nobody was going to audit them. It was just they were just hitting these construction lots, um, many, many undocumented um, workers. And I said, let me borrow your truck for a week. How much you make? The guy said, I bring in about $800 a week. I said, all right, here's $900. Give me your truck. I want to just do a little beta test on this. So drove the truck around selling lobster rolls and fish tacos, an incredible success. Go back the next week. Same thing. No bills, no laws, no regulations. I was driving this guy's food truck. Eventually, I got two food trucks, three food trucks. We wrapped them, we made them really fancy. And at the same time, this gourmet food truck thing was kind of building. Kogi was one of the first ones that came out of LA, which was Roy Choi's food truck. At the time, like I said, back when I was doing it, there was nobody there. This was in May. By June, July, there was like 15 gourmet food trucks. What starts happening? The city start calling up. Where's your business license? Where's your insurance? Where's this? Where's that? Health department needs to come and, and, and revisit your truck. None of these things were happening when it was just the guys in the construction lot doing this. Well, the government realized, wow, there's money to be made here because this thing has kind of become mainstream, this idea of gourmet food trucks. It didn't exist before that. They were roach coaches. By October of that year, my monthly costs in permits, regulations, insurance, et cetera, had gone from like two or $300 to $3,000 a month. Wow. That's how quickly they can catch up and realize if there's money to be made, we got to get our piece of it. So I, that's when I stopped doing the food trucks. I said, well, if I'm spending this much money on the food trucks, I might as well go brick and mortar. From the, I can tell you another story in terms of the brick and mortar. I was about to open my restaurant. It was a turnkey restaurant. We were grandfathered in. Uh, and the city comes to give me the final sign off and they're like, where's your underground grease interceptor? I said they didn't have one. They had an under sink one. It was grandfathered in, et cetera. They said, well, according to the fog laws, fats, oils, and grease, you're going to need an underground uh, grease interceptor. And I said, yeah, but that's not for another five or six months. Cross that bridge when we come to it. Basically, they're like, no, you need to do it now. So I had, was ready to open my restaurant and I needed to come up with $20,000 to dig and put in an underground grease interceptor, delay my, the opening, Nobody told me about this. It wasn't necessarily mandatory, and uh, it delayed my opening. I had to take out high-interest loans to get this grease interceptor put in. And, you know, it took me six months to pay those loans off. That money could have gone into growing the business more. Instead, it was paying off these high-interest loans from, like, merchant finance advanced companies out of New York. Uh, you see, that's just another example. So some people might, might argue that, yeah, you know, some of these businesses may not start. They're not paying people well. You know, maybe we have less of them. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, then who's going to open those businesses, right? It's going to be larger multi-unit corporations that are effectively extensions of the state or the government that lack culture, right? They lack that, that independence. Food is the great unifier. We need those family-run restaurants. We need those independent restaurants to bring people together to have face-to-face -face conversations. We don't need people just ordering from McDonald's on Uber Eats and sitting online arguing with each other. Uh, you know, I always talk about the fact that once you have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone, you know, that angry direct message or that angry comment on X or whatever social media platform suddenly becomes insignificant. When you talk about it, you laugh about it, 90% of the time it's over food. And <clears throat> you can bring people together in these social settings. You can bring people together in this common square, um, you know, this public square. But it's always done over food, and it's always done in charming, unique, one-off settings that don't feel 
like, uh, you know, what was that, Demolition Man, where they set a Taco Bell on every single corner. You know, we don't want to, you know, kind of like this corporatism to take over our food system. And from a health perspective, from an independent business perspective, a lot of these corporations, I'm not putting them down, but a lot of these large multi-unit restaurants, you know, they're, they're, they're centralizing their food purchasing. They're not buying from local farmers. They're not buying from some of these local ranchers. They're not serving the best products either for us. A lot of seed oils, a lot of fake meats, a lot of um, improperly processed food. They're not supporting local fishermen. Uh, and that's what we need in America is we need people to support those independent food producers as well. Because even if it costs more, an economist might sit here with me and say, well, you know, the notion of comparative advantage proves that if you buy, you know, the uh, imported product or the centralized food product for less money, then you're going to have more money in your pocket to spend in the local economy, and that's going to stimulate the economy more. Well, in food, nothing is apples to apples, pun intended. When you're buying a healthier product, right, which is typically the local product that travels less, it's better for the environment, it's better for you. When you're healthier, you spend less money on Medicaid, Medicare, on health costs, and that helps the overall country, the, the kind of the economic backbone of the country, when you have a healthier populace. You're also going to be more productive, too. You're going to be more healthy. productive. Yeah. You're going to be happier. You're going to be less inclined to want to talk to a psychologist, to have, take pharmaceuticals to try and, you know, fix your brain, right? Like, the, all of these things are natural, and that, that's the key. At, at the very foundation of everything I do is the environment. I'm an environmentalist. I'm just a free market environmentalist. I don't believe that the government can fix the environment or the problems that exist in our environment. I frankly believe a lot of the issues in our environment today, from plastics in the environment to pollution, all stemmed from the, de develop the EPA. I think the government creating the EPA was actually the worst thing for the environment. And I think a lot of these environmental groups are just trying to raise money and, they, and there's this alarmism and they, they fear mongering to try and scare you about climate change to raise money. But they don't actually operate from the perspective of developing real policy or stripping back policy that's going to help the environment. Do they actually put a lot of the things in other countries? Do they send them to other countries so we don't see it? Oh, you mean in terms of the plastics? A lot of other, oh, yeah. a lot of processing, a lot yeah. of chemicals, a lot of mining. All that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you got to think about it, right? If we're talking about the environment as a whole and climate change, right? We're one world, right? One world, one ocean. So you can't isolate in a vacuum what we do here in the United States, what they do in China, what they do in Indonesia, Vietnam, Canada, anywhere, because it's affecting all of us. So unless you have everybody operating on the same playing field, there's no purpose in hurting U.S. citizens with regulations to the benefit of another country that can now use those carbon credits or whatever metric you want to use. Plastic, right? We recycle. We spend a lot of money recycling. Most of that gets dumped in the ocean or it gets shipped over to China and they dump it in the ocean, right? We feel good recycling. It's about that instantaneous, um, you know, feedback loop that we're in, but it doesn't help the environment. And I've talked about plastic and the life cycle of plastic. Right? Plastics aren't the problem. Humans are the problem. The, if, you, if you actually look at plastic against aluminum or any of these other substances, the life cycle of plastic is the, the lowest. So from, strictly from an environmental perspective, plastic actually isn't the issue. But yet we're spending so much time and energy banning plastic bags, banning plastic water bottles, banning plastic straws, criminalizing offering a plastic straw in California. That's a bill in L.A. 
If you offer a straw to a customer, you as the server and the restaurant will get penalized, right? It's a civil violation. So how about we fix the human behavior and we stop littering plastic? What's the one thing that we don't throw away? Money. Guess what? There's plastic and money. Why don't we throw it away? Because there's value to it, because there's a human behavior. And that, that's the thing. That, that's what we need to think about. So, you know, I go all the way back, not having the restaurant. Um, you know, if we don't have that vehicle through which we can actually implement, on a very small scale level, implement these values, right, these morals that are the foundation of how we operate and what we do every single day, uh, then, and you leave it up to the government, then, there, then that system of values goes away. So you're saying we, we are creating a lot of regulations, but we are not having the values inside the people. Yeah, we're taking we're values away. We're unmooring people from a value system. So let's look at it this way, right? You've got the government up here, okay? And you've got all these millions of small independent businesses. And within those businesses, you're learning about values. You're learning about how to treat your employees better. You're understanding if you don't treat your team members well, they're going to quit. And they're going to go work for somebody else. So you want to treat them well. You understand about the, the struggles they face in their life. I mean, I spend most of my time as well in restaurants hearing about how Sally broke up with Joe, the issues they're having at home. So-and-so passed away, and we need to raise money for the funeral of X, Y, and Z's parents. I mean, we are a big family, right? So now you don't have those little microcosms where you can learn about that, where you can establish a value system. And those businesses now... The corporations buy out all that real estate, they buy out those small businesses, and they just make it another McDonald's, right? And then within that world, it's, you know, you're now part of the corporate value system, right, which we know is just regurgitated junk. And the corporations work hand-in-glove with the government, corporatism, in the United States. That's, I mean, effectively part of the economic calculus. Because they can't afford to lobby for the laws, right? Exactly, exactly. So now what you're doing is, is that, you're, you know, you're diluting or you're actually just galvanizing this system, right? This, this tree with all government and corporate values. And you're losing the independence. You're losing the charm. You're losing that independent val- community-driven value system because, you know, a corporation in Chicago owns this restaurant down here. They don't know what happens locally. They don't un- the guy in Chicago isn't there. When Stephanie gets in a fight with her mother, who's an alcoholic, and she comes to work crying, and she needs somebody to talk to, and my wife is there to act as a mentor to walk her through that, utilizing a set of values that we learn as a family. I have four kids. My wife runs the restaurant with us. We're very, very um, spiritual. We are driven by a good set of values, and we teach that to the kids. But it also parlays into our restaurant. All of my team members have been with me for years, some of them well over a decade, because they understand they're treated well. They treat us well back, quid pro quo. We pay well, and they appreciate the system of values that we've taught them, and they teach us back. So you have your kids and your wife involved in it. How, how's that? Oh, well, I mean, working with my whole family, is, it's fun, um, but it's also it's a struggle because it, there's no distinction between work and home life. But that's a good thing, right? Because you're not a different person at work than you are at home. You're the same person 24-7. Once again, being driven by the same North Star, the same set of values that uh, you, know, you are at home. You know, too often I see people who work and they have a work life and they have a home life and they're distinctly different. And a lot of times I see those people struggle. They can't find their way. Uh, you know, they're not grounded, they're not moored to something. And, uh, 
then they end up cheating on their significant others. They don't treat their kids properly, right? It's just this, you know, very, very, um, you know, very, very dysfunctional relationship with life. We don't, we don't suffer from those issues. Now, my wife yells at me all day long in the restaurant, and then we go home and she continues to yell at me. No, I'm just joking. But it's great. I mean, my kids work in the restaurant. She might yell at you more after this. Interview. Oh, she definitely will. <laughs> I'm kidding. She drives. She, she's, the, she's the engine behind every, everything good that I do. But we have the kids in the restaurant. They learn about hard work. They understand the value of a dollar. Um, uh, you know, when they ask, it's so funny because when they ask for things, Dad, why, I want to buy this game on a PS5, or why can't I have that electric motorbike, or this or that? And we say, well, it costs money. Well, what, you know, wh what's money? Well, we explain to them, when someone comes in a restaurant, we, we, we produce food for them. They give us money. We work hard for that. That's when daddy's in the kitchen, when you're in the office, you know, doing a puzzle, and daddy's working because he's creating a product that then we sell and we receive money for. They understand more about macroeconomics than probably, you know, a senior in high school because they see it. They see the exchange. So they know how much hard work and sacrifice goes into making that money. And it's not like, gimme, 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 gimme. People are bailing on California in record and half of Californians are considering moving. It's a domino effect. What's happening? Where is the state headed? People were tricked and fooled. We're being told everything's fine, this is normal. People are making money off our problems. We love regulations in this state. We just love it. We can control how people live. And now, Andrew, what does it take for you to open another restaurant in California? PAG has got to go away. If, it, you know, we, there needs to be uh, some sort of a governor put on the, uh, you know, on the, the, the runaway PAGA mafia, number one. Um, I also firmly believe that we should be paying people more in California because it's very expensive to live here. I think there needs to be an incentive system within the payroll tax framework. So if you pay your employees, let's say $25 an hour, you automatically get tiered down and you pay less in payroll taxes. So it's a net zero to your bottom line, right? So if I'm paying $5 more an hour and it costs me $10,000 to the bottom line to pay them that, well then I want an equal and opposite deduction of $10,000 because now I'm paying my employees more, they have more money to spend, and the government ultimately is still going to get that in some form of tax, whether it's sales tax or, you know, some other tax that then flows up. But now we've got a system where we can pay people and they can live comfortably um, and confidently in California. And hopefully next time we see you, you're opening up another restaurant here. That would be wonderful. I look forward to it because I love California. We've got the best food. We have the best food of any other state in the country. I'll probably get beaten up for saying that one. <laughs> Especially from people in New Jersey. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> New Jersey has the best pizza. Chef Gruel, restaurant owner, it was great to have you on California Insider. It's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. 
If you haven't checked out CaliforniaInsider.com, we highly recommend you do that now because we're going to have a lot of news and videos there. And on top of what we have there right now, we're building a really big platform to cover what's happening in California. So you can be informed. We're going to have more shows, more videos from all aspects of life in California. Go to CaliforniaInsider.com and we'll see you there.